0: and welcome to prevent this a podcast of your choice where we cover everything substance abuse related from prevention to treatment to recovery and everything in between this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of a doctor or other qualified health provider with any questions you may
1: have regarding mental health addiction or substance abuse Well, thank you for joining us today on Prevent This, a podcast of your choice, and today we're going to be talking about marijuana, and we're going to be covering substance use and mental health fact versus fiction. So today, our goal is to help clear up some common misconceptions about marijuana, especially when it comes to teen use. And so as we see more legalization of marijuana throughout the United States, it's really easy for teens and families to misinterpret this to mean that it's safe. And this is not the case. Marijuana is more harmful to teens than adults. It can increase the risk for progression um, to a more severe substance use problem later on, and it can lead to withdrawals when stopped, this information is not getting conveyed enough to our youth in this era of growing cultural acceptance. Today we are joined by a longtime friend and frequent presenter with your choice, Matthew Quinn, and Matthew Quinn provides community rec- for Rosecrans Health Network in the western suburbs of Chicago in Cook, DuPage, Kane, and Kendall counties. He is a member of the Coalition for a Drug-Free Lions Township, Community Alliance for Prevention in Naperville, the Prevention Leadership Team in DuPage County, the Juvenile Justice Council in Kane County, and the Connect for Life program through the Naperville Police Department. He completed his bachelor's degree in psychology at the University of Notre Dame and a master's degree in clinical psychology at the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. Matthew is a licensed clinical psychologist, counselor, and certified alcohol and drug counselor in Illinois, and he was the program coordinator for the Adolescent Intensive Outpatient Program at Linden Oaks at Elmhurst for eight years prior to coming to Rosecrans. He's been a therapeutic mentor for troubled teens and a member advocate for employee assistance programs as well, and he's been counseling and working in this field for the past 15 years. So please welcome me in joining our guest today, Matt Quinn.
2: So thanks everybody for jumping on, Uh, Ashley and I were talking about before everybody got on, I think this is maybe my 5th or 6th time presenting for for your choice and it's been just great collaborating with the team. Um, You know, I I remember back to probably about 6 or 7 years ago when I first started reading some really good research on marijuana. Um, And a lot of it was associated with uh, Northwestern University right here outside in the Chicagoland area, just on brain development and some of the impact that marijuana may be having on brain development. Um, And I remember thinking way back then, I I, I am thinking people need to know about this. And so it's been really exciting to, to be able to get this information out and build my own kind of library of other people's research and, and, what's out there and really being able to share that and then allowing all of you it's it's so exciting doing these presentations and seeing the number of participants we're about to cross over into 300 there were you know over 800 people signed up so it's so exciting to to from way back then saying people need to know this information to be able to to disseminate it in this way because i think there's a lot there's a big lack of information, especially when it comes to teens and young people, in terms of the impact that, that marijuana can have. So it's exciting to, to get into all that. So just so just some brief uh, some brief of the background. Um, so I provide community relations for Rosecrans Health Network. For any of you that don't know, uh, Rosecrans Health Network is a nonprofit treatment agency that focuses Focuses primarily on substance use disorders, but we also provide uh, mental health residential treatment for teens as well. Um, so it's a, it's a natural fit in terms of what we do and being able to provide this this information. So um, some of my background as well in terms of clinical, I've I've been working directly with clients, uh, primarily with young people and teens, on um, with substance use issues, outpatient, uh, residential level, all of those types of things. So. This is something I've been passionate about for a long time, and I've gotten to see firsthand how damaging and how progressive something like marijuana can be, especially when it's a young person using it, how quickly it can progress and what it can turn into uh, over a period of just maybe a year, two, three, four, five years, uh, how quickly it can spiral out of control. So I have a, a passion for this and really trying to get people to understand how, how impactful this can be. So hopefully you guys uh, find it to be useful. I, I think the going last in, in the impact marijuana series, which is kind of a, you know a, a nice position to be in just because it's, it allows me to try to kind of wrap it all up in one tiny package. Certainly there there probably be some of this information because every presentation has been on marijuana. There's probably going to be, there's probably going to be some of this that may overlap with what you've heard before. So I want to apologize for in advance for that, but, Hopefully it will help to deepen your, your knowledge and there will be aspects to it that, that kind of fill in maybe some of the gaps of your knowledge moving forward. So, so I always like to touch on, because there are CEUs offered and um, that type of thing, I always like to kind of do an overview of what the objectives are over the next hour plus. Really what we're going to be talking about overall are some of the key misconceptions that I've seen develop. Over the past ten years, regarding marijuana, and unfortunately, some of those misconceptions have gotten worse because of legislation and because of legalization in states like I'm in Illinois, and you know it's it's legal here recreationally, medicinally now. And I think sometimes with younger people, it's easy for them to misinterpret legal to mean safe. Um, and so, I think moving forward, it's going to be really important that we. Back that legalization up with appropriate education for parents, for um, middle school students in particular. A lot of those, a lot of those kiddos haven't haven't tried this stuff and are a little bit maybe more open to good information about why it's really important that they not start dabbling in that stuff, particularly through their teenage years. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna get into some of that, particularly with brain development. That's a big thing for me because I really feel like. A lot of the harm that's done to teens with marijuana not only marijuana like we're gonna be talking about today but with alcohol with nicotine probably the biggest the biggest harm that I see is with the brain and how that affects you know risk for a progression of the problem and mood disorders and anxiety disorders because of that disruption of that that natural brain development that happens until about age 25 we're gonna talk about progression I always like to talk about these two pillars of why it's so important that young people not use substances. One of them is the brain development, and then the other one is that risk for progression. There's plenty of research out there that the younger someone starts substance use, the higher their rate of progressing to a a worse problem. And and the two tie together, as you would imagine, in terms of brain development and, and risk for progression. And then we'll talk about a few miscellaneous misconceptions out there about withdrawal, and driving. Uh, we're going to talk about pregnancy. Hopefully, if we have time as well, we'll just kind of play it by ear in terms of how we're doing with time. So this is going to be kind of in a myth and fact format. So I'm going to spend some time really getting in depth with these three myths that I, that I already mentioned in terms of marijuana not being harmful. Now, probably a lot of you, maybe most of you out there listening now, probably are aware of that that marijuana is harmful for teens. But there are plenty of young people, even parents out there, that don't understand how harmful it can be and and really the why. With all of these myths, I really want to arm people with a lot of information about the why behind it so that we're all not just telling young people or parents, "Oh, marijuana is bad for teens. Okay, but why? The more you can speak to that eloquently and research-based, it's really going to help with being able to build a, a good argument for why parents should set boundaries around, around non-use with marijuana and other drugs and and for young people maybe that are have started or are just starting give them really good information about why they should maybe reconsider their choices. So we're going to go through each of these in turn and give you some information about about each of them that'll help to kind of really kind of dispute the the myth uh, regarding some of these uh, different uh, different components of this okay so let's first start talk about the idea that marijuana is not harmful for teens now I in putting this together I intentionally put the idea of teens in in that statement now I want to clarify something that doesn't mean that marijuana is not harmful for adults okay it is but it's more harmful for teens when we look at brain development and and risk for progression and those types of things. And given my work and given kind of the the overall work of your choice, I really wanted to hone in on that because really that's where the evidence-based, the research-based is a little bit more conclusive. There's still some conflicting research, but I always like to tell people in the 50-plus, you know, what I consider to be credible research articles I've read over the past five-plus years, what it, the the overarching message I've getting, because I have I have three young ones, you know, my daughter, Ashley and I were talking about how my daughter's gonna be in middle school next year, which is which is crazy. In my mind, it, it, it's important that as a parent that I set a boundary around non use. And that's not based on any moral objection to these things or it's really just based on the research I've read and compiling. Some of the research has been more kind of inconclusive or saying maybe it's not as bad but overall what i've read that if i look at the whole if you look at the whole body of research i've read it's led me as a parent to really set a line of non-use so take that for what it's worth and, and i think when when i go through all of these slides you'll understand why i think that is an important line to set with a, in therapy work and parenting any of those types of things it's interesting I, In putting this together the the picture it looks like it looks like the the young man here who's who's considering this choice Maybe isn't so excited or is concerned about some of the harm that can come from it as well I thought that was kind of interesting so So I, I like to when I talk about brain development, I talk about drugs in this case marijuana I always like to to talk about this kind of metaphor or analogy with with wet cement so and I think pretty quickly, it'll become clear why I'm doing that. So I always like to run through a few pictures. So you, you have the, the the cement being poured here, right? And then you have somebody that's raking it out, smoothing it out, and then they kind of trowel trow it out to smooth it out, right? You, could, you know, in a lot of ways, you could think of child, in particular, adolescent brain development as this process that you're seeing here of when we're going to talk about pruning and you know rewiring and myelination all these fancy terms if you want to think of it more simply really what it is is the brain kind of smoothing out this wet cement and really preparing it for adulthood in a way that's going to maximize its functioning so if that kind of simplifies that that visualization that's kind of why i like to do this so if you think about maybe the 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 late teen brain, early 20 brain, that's kind of what this is. It's starting to kind of solidify a little bit in terms of all the different neurons and different amygdala and all these uh, nucleus accumbens, hippocampus, all these kind of fancy terms for different parts of the brain. But up until the age of 25 or so, the, the, the cement's still wet. So those teenage years are, are more vulnerable to, and if you, if you could probably guess, the, the steps in here would be analogous to substance use. And, and I'll get into the details of why in terms of why, why does substance use, why does marijuana use represent kind of stepping on or, or messing with this, what cement. Now, if with adults, this, in a cement, cement would be dry, of course, right? That doesn't mean using substances isn't going to be harmful. But if someone, let's say, waits till the age of 25 to try, let's say, alcohol, let's just use that as a simple example the impact that's going to have on their brain and the potential harms it could cause, the risk associated with that is significantly lower because because that cement is quote-unquote hard, right? And those brain structures are more or less kind of fixed moving forward. So that's why it's so important, if at all possible, to really, you know, delay. Obviously abstinence is going to, over a lifetime is going to lead to a healthier and more and better functioning brain. But Realistically, if if, if the young people if they know later on they're going to try uh, try drinking or those types of things, really really delaying that use as long as possible is going to promote um, help the healthiest brain moving forward. Oops, Hang on. I uh, pushed the wrong button there. So so here's just another kind of visualization of what that might look like if if a young person is using. So hopefully that makes sense what I'm what I'm saying there. So here's getting scientific about what that wet cement is so through the teenage through childhood teenagers through the mid-20s really there's these kind of make these synaptogenesis which is a fancy term for new synapses or connections between brain neurons that's happening myelination This other term, apoptosis, which is an important part of that brain development through the teenage years and early twenties, it's a pruning process where the brain kind of takes a look, for lack of a better term, at what skills are being utilized. You know, are they a musician, mathematics? You know, what what skills are being utilized and really honed in on those? Those are going to be a focus. Whereas other, if you have somebody, that's why it's so hard to learn an instrument later on in life versus when you're young, because the young brain still has for that. And if you start, those those won't get pruned out versus if you don't learn an instrument, say, during those teenage years, early 20s, then sometimes those neurons to learn those can start to get pruned out because the brain is saying, well, we don't use this. It's basically a way to specialize the brain and make it most efficient for the skills and tools that are being used by that person, if that makes sense. Okay. This is kind of what I've already talked about, so I'll kind of skip another thing that some of the research that's emerging that's really kind of compelling to me so they've they've found with regular marijuana use that there is so in this this area of brain overall but then particularly in this area of, of the brain that's kind of right behind your eyes. that's why it's called the orbital frontal or occipital frontal cortex orbit orbit bone is the eye bone that kind of right around bone so that area right behind there in the brain it's really kind of they're finding an important part of the brain that's for potential substance use issues or, or addiction, and in that part of the brain, they have found with increased marijuana use that the, the ratio there's an important kind of balance in, in this ratio of gray matter to, to white matter. And don't ask me to get too far into the weeds in terms of like the, what those two different parts, the gray matter versus white matter, uh, does. But there's an important ratio there, right? And so when there's a, when there's too low of a, 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 a an amount of gray matter. Can lead to issues with, like it says here, impulse control, decision making, learning. Uh, higher scores on, on this measure called the Marijuana Problem Survey, right? Uh, lower, lower neuron density. And there's some theory that there can be this connection between this decreased gray matter and the brain maybe compensating because there's some evidence that people, that kids that use marijuana, that pruning process that I talked about earlier, it accelerates a little bit more because the brain's trying to make. This decreased gray matter by saying okay well we got to make this we got to make this organ more efficient by pruning faster and that in a lot of ways makes the issue worse over time because it makes for a lack of motivation and mood and, and anxiety you know, issues that come along with that so again the brain science behind all of this and I would encourage any of you that find this really interesting to, to dive into it but be mindful of you know make sure that you are the researcher reading because there's there's going to be information presented on both sides of this a hospital, a university, and not something where there's an inherent interest with with an industry that's looking to make some money. So with the legalization piece, you know, I I forgot to mention this earlier, I think that the legalization piece really has taken front and center, justifiably so, it's important, but at the same time, I feel like it's in a lot of ways kind of overshadowed a lot of this education that I'm trying to promote in terms of message of legalization, think about from the perspective of a young young person, they find out something is initially illegal, right? And then it it, it becomes legal. What's the, what's the inherent message that a young person is going to get through that? Right. To me, it's going to be, Oh, maybe this isn't that bad. Oh, maybe it's not that harmful. Right. And so if we don't want young people to have that misconception, of marijuana does not mean it's safe for a young person in particular to be doing this and here's the why behind that um, the, the second bullet point here is really interesting because this was part of that I remember I mentioned five six seven years ago when I really first started uh, connecting the dots with all this and starting to read some of this research that was emerging this is this was related to some of that it was a collaboration between Northwest University and Harvard University, of Massachusetts General Hospital, where they they studied the brains of young people that were using marijuana regularly versus those that didn't, and they were they were finding some evidence that some of these really key parts of the brain were misshapen, uh, less dense, smaller. Where there was some, there there seemed to be some possible impact on. The actual physical development some of the, some of these key regions of the brain that are listed here that are responsible for really, really important things like motivation and managing mood and anxiety, memory, uh, appetite, stress, muscle coordination, right? And so I think the thing that really struck me, and I think it'll always stand out to me and, and led me down this path to do this education, was the parts of the brain they were talking about and the functions of those parts of the brain overlapped so neatly with what I had seen having worked with teens at that point for, you know, five to 10 years now, upwards to 15 plus years, I, I saw the same symptoms over and over again with teenagers that were using marijuana right regularly, like lack of motivation, uh, mood, mood and anxiety issues that looked like depression that looked like an anxiety disorder, right? Really tr- a lot of trouble with, with sharp memory and, and being able to, to remember things, you know, more than a month ago with any level of clarity. So When I saw that research and how neatly it overlapped with what I saw time after time, I really felt compelled to, to share this because most people, a lot of people aren't able to see firsthand the dozens and dozens, the hundreds of kids that I've worked with, that have used marijuana, to be able to see how neatly those symptoms overlap with the research. And I felt like it was important to really share that to get people to understand that this really is impacting brain development in a significant way that's harmful. now as you would imagine because in the title we talked about mental health right now when a young person using marijuana and it's having this impact on the brain naturally there's going to be some some impact on mental health right if if it's making that amygdala smaller and that amygdala is responsible for anxiety regulation, mood regulation, you're naturally going to have potentially a presentation that looks more depressed and more anxious. And that's what I've seen, which is really fascinating to me because what what I've seen sometimes with parents and and even with fellow professionals is if if there's not a really thorough understanding of the history of substance use with a young person or there's not a really good understanding of brain development with these things, it can be really easy to misdiagnose a substance use disorder as a mood disorder like depression or an anxiety disorder, like generalized anxiety disorder. But that might, if you just address it as that and treatment and medication, which is that you might be missing the key piece, which is the substance use. And I've seen it many times where clients that I've worked with, um, they, they stop using either because they want to, or because they're in a program and they feel like they have to. And what might look like depression or anxiety starts to lift. And all of a sudden, it starts to become clear that it's really the substance that was inducing those symptoms. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes, there what looks like depression might get worse but they were self-medicating depression or anxiety. Or, you know, it, it, they, they may need then that to be addressed separately, right? But it's important to know which is which because it could be kind of 50-50 which way that goes. So, a lot of a lot of substance use can mask other disorders um, and, and make it confusing about. The chicken and the egg, which which is which? Memory issues, which I've talked about. What I'm not going to put, talk too much about today is that this idea of psychosis, how with young people, especially because of how strong the marijuana is out there, it's really increasing the emergence of psychosis, risk for psychosis, just because with how potent it is, it just brings on this whole host of other potential psychotic features because the brain really isn't, isn't built to handle the, the potency of, of what, what a lot of kids are doing these days. So when we talk about myths and facts, right? Here's here's the facts: right? regular cannabis use hinders brain function, right? Now, to what degree is it could vary, right? When we talk about risk factors in a little bit, that's going to be play a big role. Frequency we're going to play a big role, right? But you know, when I when I get in these conversations, sometimes with young people, they I always like to distinguish between the accept the rule and the exception because particularly with marijuana, I'll have young people say, well, I know so-and-so uses marijuana every day. They get straight A's. Right. And that might be true. There's, there, you know, I always try to avoid living in, in the black and white. There might be, there might be young people that for a period of time are able to do that, but they're going to be way in the exception. Generally, the rule is going to be at least from my experience and what I've read, that regular use is going to impact them in some way. Now it might not be something that looks like a, a full blown anxiety disorder or a mood disorder, but it's going to impact them in some way. It might impact their motivation, or they're not as sharp or, or or interested in doing well in school. So it's going to have a mild, moderate to severe impact on brain function, especially with regular, like regular use. Frequency matters, you know. Not to say that for a marijuana, a teen to use marijuana once a week, once a month is okay or safe. But certainly in terms of functioning, there are going to be differences. There's going to be differences generally between a team that's using marijuana every day and one that is using uh, marijuana once a month. But even the team that's using once a month, still because of when I talk about the kind of the progression of a substance use disorder, the risk, the risk of even monthly uh, use from time to time. The risk is just too high in my mind to in any way uh, condone that or, or say that that's OK just because of it. I do want to talk just briefly about some of the interesting research that's out there in terms of the IQ, too, that there is some evidence through various studies that marijuana use through adolescence can decrease IQ by anywhere from 8 to 10 points. So what that means in layman's terms is that if you look at the kind of this bell curve, that 10 points really represents kind of almost about a 30. So the middle to the second line there down, right, so you're talking about almost 30 some percent relative so this curve kind of represents the overall population of people and and how intelligence generally is is kind of uh, spread out right so you're talking about a drop from a kind of a 50 percentile down to a 37 percentile potentially with marijuana use so that's that's an important thing to acknowledge well as as well it's not just necessarily about mood and anxiety and motivation but also just kind of overall intelligence can be impacted by regular marijuana use as well so One thing I added in at the last minute that I thought was important, because I talked so much about brain development, and I think in terms of any organ that's impacted most by by marijuana, it is the brain. But I think it would be neglectful to not talk about the lungs at all, at least. Um, Most young people these days are using different vaping products where there might not be smoke from an actual joint or a product like that where there's actually smoke and fire, right? But I think because of that there can be this misconception that vaping devices are harmless, like it's somehow some type of you know humid humidifier, right? So it's important to recognize that even if it's marijuana, if it's nicotine, there's solvents that and different chemicals that are used to get get it in kind of a liquid form that can then be put into the damp pen or the cartridge or whatever the case may be. So it's important to acknowledge that in, in various forms and quantities these chemicals are part of that and as you would imagine over time with the lungs whether again whether it's marijuana or nicotine if 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 any of these are being ingested on a regular basis even if there's only a couple of these then it's natural to understand how the harm that that's going to do to the lungs that may not affect mood so much or anxiety but could increase risk of i did want to show this that there's studies emerging that teens that vape are more likely to get be symptomatic with COVID five to seven times more likely. This is some research I believe from Stanford, right? Even when they're accounting for risky behaviors and age and sex and and all of these different things, it's still the increase. And I think that speaks to because, because some of the later symptoms with COVID are so much pneumonia and lung-based that, Makes sense that there's these other chemicals that are kind of bombarding the lungs, that that's going to compromise that immune function or how well the lungs work and make it more susceptible to something like COVID symptomatically. And that's not to say these young people are dying because we all know that young people aren't necessarily susceptible to death with COVID, but at the same time, it could lead to who knows if you have a, a COVID infection and you get pneumonia like symptoms, maybe because you vape, I think we, we don't know yet what type of impact that could have later on in terms of somebody's risk for emphysema or COPD or lung cancer. Right? It wouldn't surprise me at all if if it increases that down the line. So I wanted to at least briefly touch on the harm that does come from, from marijuana. Now, if it's marijuana in smoke form, certainly, certainly there's a whole other host of carcinogens that come along with the smoke itself. That are going to be harmful to the lungs and increased chances later on of, again, emphysema and, and chronic uh, you know, pulmonary disease and those types of things. So I felt like it was important to, to briefly add that in as well. i wanted want to neglect that. So overview before we get into myth number two, the harm focus on the brain. Really, that's going to, I think, be, because I think that's really what we should be focusing on in terms of of the impact that marijuana has, really try to pull any of this information in, in situations that you can to be able to utilize and provide that information. So let's move on to myth number two that we hear sometimes is that marijuana doesn't lead to a worse substance use issue. So I want to kind of refute that a little bit based, again, on research and then also what I've seen with, with young people that, you know, a few, a few young people I've worked with come to mind that maybe were 14 or 15 at the time. and kind of looking at me as kind of the the old old guy in terms of oh, man, that just don't get it it's just marijuana it's going to be legal someday and at the time this was five six seven years ago they turned out to be right about that but lo and behold three four five years later some of these young people died of heroin overdoses so they i think it could be especially with legalization it could be easy to fall into this misconception or trap that, that marijuana doesn't lead to a progression now i think when we talk about that i always like to talk about the term gateway versus risk factors because if especially if you talk to a young person who's using marijuana or thinking about it, if you use the term gateway you'll get a lot of eye rolls so i try to talk avoid the, the term gateway because to say marijuana is a gateway drug is to me a little bit potentially misleading because to, in my mind no drug is or is not a gateway drug it really depends it's so much more individualized or based on risk factors, right? So I, I like that term better. And let's just run, run through these a little, a little bit, and then we'll talk about the idea of marijuana and, and the it kind of how it weaves together with these different risk factors. So we talk about family history, right? That, that's a big, and we'll talk about how big, how big that is. Age of first use. That's why that's the second pillar, you know, it's brain development. And then it's, and then it's this idea of Age of first use is a really big factor that'll determine whether somebody's going to progress to heavier use of that drug or to other drugs later on. Mental health issues, which you could tie in potentially with, with trauma uh, and the underlying mental health issues, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, PTSD, trauma. Those. So really, if you want to lump together trauma and mental health, it's the big three: genetics, age of first use, and mental health issues. If you want to really kind of consolidate it, are there other factors? Sure. But if you really want to kind of simplify and consolidate, these are the biggies that are going to make a young person more susceptible to risk and, and to progression. So in terms of the research that's out there and, and the role of genetics, it, it ends up being anywhere from 30 or 40 to 60%. So I would like to kind of just hone in about 50%. In other words, if you have a pie chart of, of what, what risk of someone progressing is. About half of that, the whole pie chart is going to be genetics. So, family history of alcoholism. Not just alcoholism, but significant substance use issues with other drugs, which can include marijuana, cocaine, heroin, all of those things. That's all relevant as well. So, in other words, if you have the child the, you know, child of an alcoholic, right there, then and there, that's going to make them more, eight times more likely to develop a substance issue, issue and make them much more at risk to develop problems mental health issues, if you have a child, a middle school student, early high school student that is exhibiting, I always like to put it in these kind of quotes because a lot of times with young people, these issues are undiagnosed, you know, oftentimes up until later in high school or adult. So I always like to put it in terms of if you have a young person that's talking so much about the pressure of different parts of their life and and, and really having a hard time managing that pressure. Pressure usually means anxiety. Having a hard time with either standards for they put on themselves, or or sports, or school, academics, and college, and all of these things that can be kind of a pressure cooker. Kind of something to watch out for, or not feeling comfortable in their own skin, being down all the time. Uh, child childhood abuse, their trauma fits into that. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all of those types of things. Right. ADHD is a lot of people don't realize that that makes someone a little bit more at risk to developing significant substance use issues so if those are underlying you know we're going to start to put together a picture here right Uh, in terms of if you have if you have somebody that has a family history and I used to do this exercise with um, teens I used to work with in in IOP programming where we would do a family tree and it was amazing how often that that there was just substance use issues littered littered throughout the family So, the genetic risk is there and then we talk about half the time or more there'd be people in the group that had that with anxiety or depression you know and then they came to me oftentimes because they started using it, right so we talked about how they're they've hit they've hit on these risk factors and why it's so important for them to to veer in a different direction because otherwise there's so much more at risk than progression unfortunately even more so than some of their peers that may not have the genetics may not have the mental health issues they shouldn't be using but it's dangerous for them to think okay well so-and-so friends are doing it and they're doing it in a controlled way it's important for them to understand the understand that each case is different and and because of their risk factor risk factors they may be at much more of a higher risk of progressing so overall whether you talk about alcohol marijuana nicotine I always mention those three because generally those are the first three substances that kind of are the entry level into the substance use so generally speaking Time they started using for the age of 18 now with what i talked about with brain development it should make sense right because the brain development of a 13 14 year old is much more is much further behind than an 18 year old right not to say that an 18 year old you know on their 18th birthday okay i'm on the 10 i'm good there's still a lot of brain development going on between 18 and 25 but that age you know up until the age of 18 surely that 13 susceptibility in that age is even at the point where if it's someone in that kind of 13 age 12 to 14 year old age range they're at almost a 50 percent risk of developing just that in and of itself certainly if there's a family history of, or of other mental health issues that risk is going to be even higher but even just with that that goes to show you how powerful that age of first use is that that can be that big of a factor and look how it goes down over time or if you talk about that's again that's the cement think about these percentages representing that smoothing out of the cement the cement is then smooth but it's still wet and then over time it firms up that kind of overlaps with these numbers that you'll see in terms of developing a a worse problem as time goes on if you start at too young of an age so really the best way to think of it is that substance use at those young ages really has the ability or opportunity to hijack the reward system or hijack what i call the the hierarchy of needs, right? The hierarchy of needs, it's this idea of like, what are the biggest needs, right? Water, food, shelter, et cetera, right? That when a young person, middle school, teen, they—they they, when they start using substances, their brain is so undeveloped at that point that that, that drug has the ability, if used enough to kind of trick the brain into that drug being slotted in with those needs. In other words, that it could be okay, probably not water, maybe not food, but where it's almost kind of in the mix there in terms of those needs where that drug can start to be viewed by the brain sometimes subconsciously as being just as important or needed as food or shelter or those types of things um, because, of, because of how it can mess with that nucleus that comes, that reward system, that motivation system. It's that, that powerful. So again, when we talk about myths versus fact, regular use of cannabis and use or marijuana use can increase risk for progression, right? And it talks a little bit here about what that looks like. You know, if, if a young person is continuing to use despite the problem it's causing, that's one of those telltale signs when we in a second we're gonna talk about kind of this progression of a substance abuse disorder. If if they're hitting consequences and not going back and they're continuing that's to the sign they might be reaching that kind of threshold of a more moderate to severe substance use issue. And it might be a lot harder for them to, to go back. And that's why it's so important that there be really strong support and in interventions at that point to, to arrest that or to try to, to prevent that from progressing. So let's talk about that, that SUD substance use disorder cycle, right? Occasionally you might hear slip, you might hear me say the term addiction. And you know, in, in AA and NA, you'll hear that as well. I know overall, just in terms of the, the terminology that's used in diagnostic manual, it's substance use disorder, not an addiction. And some people will claim, which I agree in a lot of ways, that the term addiction can be, it carries a lot of past baggage with stigma and all of those types of things. So I try to use the term substance use disorder because it's more current and relevant and really appropriate for what we're talking about. So let's kind of talk a little bit about how this, progression, and then I'll tie it back in with with young people and teens in terms of kind of the acceleration of this curve you're going to see. So this first part, if you think of a clock that's kind of 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, um, this could be kind of the normal use range. Now, I talked about with teens and marijuana, there shouldn't be anything or any drug really There shouldn't be considered any normal use because of the potential for risk and progression and brain development all those types of things. But let's use the example of an adult that has a glass of wine with dinner from time to time. Right? That would be considered in this kind of zero to this twelve to three o'clock range, right? It's not abusive, no consequences, it's there's control, all of those types of things we consider kind of social alcohol users, right? Now can young people fit in this? Sure, they can, but the problem is because of these other risk factors that we've talked about, there's more of a tendency to let me move it along here, to have it move quicker into some of this more what we call mild or moderate disorder really the best way to think of a mild disorder even a moderate disorder is consequences and certainly there are there there's room for that doesn't mean anybody that's a teen or an adult that's experienced consequences from their use whatever that might be that could be a hangover a, a DUI getting in trouble in whatever capacity right conflict in relationships that's not to say that, that that person can't learn from that and go back that's why it talks about here this idea of a backup, right, where they could go back to normal use and say, okay, it's like touching touch the hot stove, right, and learning from that and being able to back off from that and, and stay within kind of the, the normal range, that 12 to 3 o'clock range, okay. Now, with young people, once they start hitting consequences from their use, right, they get, let's say the one that we hear about all the time, they come to school with alcohol or with a, with a vape or whatever the case may be. They very well will. It very well be learned from that and not do that again. Stop using overall. But what, because of the brain, those consequences are are more a little bit more likely to not have as much of an impact at that point, because again that that reward system is starting to grab onto and really like that drug and the relief and the pleasant feelings. That sometimes that could start to supersede the consequences, right? And that's where we start to talk about. Kind of powerlessness that you'll hear in, in kind of 12 step language in that, in that first step, right? Where somebody can cross, you know, with alcoholism, you know, with, with an alcoholic that we all know this generally that the, the first drink that they had didn't make them an alcoholic. There may have been, they may have been years potentially where they felt like truly they were in kind of this normal use range but then it the they started using more and the consequences started happening and maybe they back up for a time but then they keep pushing until they they reached this point of no return where it became really this one-way process from this point of no return which looks kind of like the sideways equals side, where it become it can become about i'm just going to kind of move through this a little bit and, and add this other arrow where for most people for most people i don't want to say all But most people that develop a more severe substance use disorder for those of us that are old enough to remember the DSM 4 that kind of dependence versus abuse diagnosis, the idea of them being able to go back then to normal use can be impossible where if they, if they have a period of abstinence, sometimes it can be a month, uh, six months, a year, five years, 10 years, you'll have people that haven't used and they, they try to use again, more often than not, they're gonna jump right in at the path that past this equal sign that the path is this powerlessness and they're gonna overuse. Now, again, does that always happen? No, but generally speaking, that's gonna be the case. And with young people, teens, and with marijuana, because of all these risk factors, the acceleration through this may happen faster uh, because of that susceptibility. And they may reach that powerlessness within just a year, potentially, a couple of years. Whereas with later on with adults, it may take time for that to unfold, but because of the risk for progression and brain development and all these other things that can make this progression a lot faster and a lot more take, get rooted a lot more, right? So I, I felt like when we talk about progression you have to kind of talk about the overall cycle of this and how this unfolds if you're really going to kind of do it do it service in my mind. So hopefully that makes, makes some sense about how that's part of the risk uh, package that we're talking about with teens as well. All right, so let's t- start talking about myth number three, and then we'll hit on uh, a couple other myth- miscellaneous myths that, that, that I didn't include in the objective, but I think that are important to talk about. We talked about driving, which is a, there's a lot there's misconceptions, particularly with young people around marijuana and driving, then we'll talk about pregnancy as well, which maybe isn't as much of a misconception, but I think it's. Important that we all get on the same page about marijuana and understanding, you know, with alcohol, there's a pretty good understanding. When you're pregnant, you don't drink, right? And so I think with marijuana, I think it's important that that gives you the same way in terms of some of the research that's emerging and that it not be viewed as some kind of exception that's different than alcohol or other drugs in terms of the impact it can have on pregnancy. So let's talk about withdrawal because that's not something that gets talked about as much with marijuana. And I do want to say upfront that when we talk about marijuana withdrawal, I, I don't want to create any sense that the withdrawal from marijuana is gonna be as <clears throat> as unpleasant as heroin, where it's like a, an awful flu, or as dangerous as alcohol withdrawal or benzo benzodiazepine withdrawal, which can those can be deadly. But there there can be a withdrawal that I think is important to acknowledge because I've seen it I've seen it with young people with adults I've worked with where they really are having some struggles in that week or two after they stop. That may not be dangerous. They may not be severe. Sometimes they can be, but it's important to at least acknowledge that they do exist. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, And really it is going to be related to how how much and how often someone's using. If you have somebody that's using marijuana once a month, once a week, the, the withdrawal is going to be much more mild, much more negligible. But if you have someone that's using daily, multiple times a day, heavily, there is likely to be a withdrawal period that's important to educate on and make people aware of that could be a deterrent to use in the first place, or at least could help with somebody that, let's say somebody is trying to stop marijuana use and they experience these withdrawal symptoms. What, For them to be educated about it is important because if they experience some of these symptoms that I'm going to talk about, and I'll just put it up here, let's say they're having trouble sleeping or they're irritable, they're anxious, you know, that they're not eating as much, they're restless, all of these things, if they're not educated and they understand this, this can be a normal part of that withdrawal for those first couple weeks, then they may they don't may go back to using because they may say to themselves, I, I I this is this is worse. This is worse than using versus if they don't know, know about it, then they can say, Okay, I just have to get through this. You know, just like withdrawal from any drug, there's a period of getting through it. You know, detox can help with that, but there's there's gonna be some element of kind of getting through that withdrawal period and because the, the brain and the body is used to having it. So it's gonna go through some adverse consequences. So it's I think it's important to provide this education, even for parents. If they if the parents have a teen that's been using marijuana regularly and they're stopping, it's it's helpful for the parents to notice that that they don't misinterpret some of this stuff as to mean that, oh no, they're you know, if they're anxious or irritable, oh no, they have an anxiety disorder. Maybe not, maybe. But it could be just that they need to get through the withdrawal period and then you can you in other words to evaluate for a mood disorder or anxiety disorder for three days a week after somebody stops is not going to be the best time to get that evaluation done it really should come maybe a month later you know where you're clear of that withdrawal period and you're going to have kind of a better sense that's not always easy, easy to do because teens that use, are using marijuana aren't going to necessarily that's where treatment's so important you know in terms of get getting them clean and sober and then kind of monitoring that's why at Rosecrans we've kind of developed a system where we have kids come in for a few days and we'll get more information on why they're there. And, you know, and also at the same time really monitor and look at while they're not using, you know, do do some of that stuff look, that looks like an anxiety or mood disorder is that starting to fade a little bit. We could focus maybe more so on that substance use and just getting them to kind of stay away from that versus maybe that's getting worse. And we need to really look at and evaluate okay, how are we going to treat this potential underlying depression or anxiety? That's why we've kind of made that shift, to that, that ongoing assessment process. And, you know, as we call kind of our early, early assessment unit that we have at our, at our facility that we've developed out, out in Rockford. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of miscellaneous things and then let's see kind of where we're at with time. Um, so let's see, 1220. So I think we're okay with time. I think we're going to kind of. Finishing, finishing up right about an hour, I want to make sure to to leave plenty of time for for questions. So I kind of anticipated we would go about an hour and maybe be a little bit over and then leave plenty of time for, and if people have to jump off, right, at 1230, that's fine. But I want to make sure we leave plenty of time that, that we have carved up till, till one o'clock for, for questions. So with uh, with marijuana driving, let's talk about that for a couple minutes and then we'll talk a little bit about pregnancy and then and we can move on from there. So this has been going on. This is nothing new. This is something that I've been experiencing for, gosh, 10 years or so, where, and I don't know, I I really don't know how this came about, um, where there's this perception and it still persists, I think, today, where, you know, and to some credit, in terms of that the generation that's now, you know, teenagers up until the age of about 30, I think there's been a really good, progress in terms of with alcohol and not drinking and driving, not getting in a car with someone who's been driving. I think organizations like you know, Uber have helped quite a bit in terms of there's an opportunity to not maybe get parents involved but in, you know to take an Uber and those types of things. But for some reason it seems like there's this persistent misconception that's kind of stuck around that and I've heard this time after time after time that you know the, the typical story being okay. Do, you know, do you drink and drive? No, no, no. I would never do that. How about getting in a car with somebody that's been drinking? No, nope, not going to do it. How about smoking weed and driving? Well, yeah, that's that's okay. You know that there's this seems to be kind of this differentiation between marijuana and alcohol with a lot of young people that I think we really need to work hard to educate around. And as hopefully more research starts to emerge providing some of the evidence around this, that, you know, in terms of the peripheral vision and reaction time and the slowing of tracking and all of these things, I mean, marijuana is a depressive, right? So what does that mean? It's going to slow everything down. It's going to slow your heart rate down, your pulse down. So naturally, if you really think about it, for it to slow down reaction time and, and, It makes perfect sense. Certainly, it's going to depend on how much somebody has ingested, but it's going to affect driving, whether a little bit or a lot. And so, I think we really need to do a good job of making sure and educating young people on the fact that it is not safe to use marijuana and drive. It's not safe. It may not be. It may be a different presentation. You know, with alcohol, that driving may be a little bit more reckless, a little bit you know faster, and those types of things. You know with with marijuana you know the the old joke kind of is is that it, this might be the person on the highway that's driving you know 40 35 or 45 30 or 5 or 40 miles an hour in the right hand lane but it's important to realize that in some ways that that can be just as dangerous as driving a little too fast right in terms of you know, people that are that are driving on the road aren't going to be anticipating on a fifty-five mile an hour highway. Somebody can be driving thirty-five or forty miles an hour, or somebody pulling up to a stop sign way in, you know, way in front of the, it. Just it throws off perception in a way that can just cause kind of odd behavior. That's not necessarily reckless, but it can just throw off the general. If they stop way in front of a stop sign, a person behind them might rear end them because they're anticipating the person's going to go go up to the stop sign. So it's not your traditional reckless driving necessarily, but it just of throw off perception in a way that can lead to a higher risk of, of accidents because it's kind of throwing off the, the flow of all of that type of thing. Here's just some of the the research that I've found in terms of reaction time, slowing down reaction time and memory, uh, deterioration of driving ability, keeping the car in the middle lane, not swerving, and you know, that can that can lead to all host of problems, just a little bit of a swerve can cause all kinds of problems potentially. So I just want to spend a couple minutes talking about some of the stuff I've found regarding marijuana and pregnancy. Certainly there's this pretty strong perception that's taken root in terms of alcohol and pregnancy. I'd love to see the same perception and I don't think it's as strong and I think we could do a better job of getting, getting pregnant you know, mothers to be aware of the risks of low birth rate and risk of stillbirth and and all of these types of things that I'm just going to run through here just for the sake of time. And they've been able to track some, some some of these kids into childhood and higher rates of all of these different things, impulsive behavior, hyperactivity, you know, probably related to the impact marijuana might be having through that placenta, you know, in terms of the marijuana going then into that. I mean, if we talk about a teenager and the impact marijuana has on the teenager, Think about how much more vulnerable a fetus is going to be in terms of marijuana getting passed through into that fetus and into that brain and how it could impact and then have kind of the core the corresponding problems that come behaviorally with that in terms of IQ scores, memory, all of these things that some of the evidence is starting to emerge with in terms of uh, marijuana use in, in pregnancy. And then even through the teen years, right? Some of the same, you know, we go back and I not want to do that too fast. Um, You know, in terms of delinquent behavior, drug and alcohol, it looks similar, right? In terms of, you know, if you have a young person that's using in that middle school or early teenage years, a lot of the, you're going to see a lot of the same risks and issues that arise from that that you would if if a mother is using marijuana during pregnancy. A lot of this is going to overlap if there's alcohol use or other drug use. You're going to see some of the similar behaviors. So I think it's whether it's driving, whether it's pregnancy, whether it's brain development, whether it's risk for progression. We need to do a better job as, again, think of it like this kind of like wave of acceptance that comes along with legalization that's happening. There needs to be kind of a counterbalance, at least to kind of hold it steady with all of this education and whatever parts of this you really grab onto or really like, Do you dig in yourself to some of this and use your forums, whatever they might be. I mean, we have over 300 people on here. Whatever your platform is you utilize it to try to you know we're going to we're going to share this this um, this presentation as well you're you're welcome to use any components of it to try to let's get this information out there so that at least everybody you know parents as many parents as many young people are educated on this so that 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 wave of cultural acceptance that side with education and, and, and explaining risks. So here's here are just some of the sources I've used. There's others as well. I'm happy to point anybody in the right direction uh, in terms of information that they would want it regarding any particular topic. I've done presentations before or afterward. I have email exchanges with with people about, hey, they'll ask me about a question and I'll point them in a good direction regarding some of the research I've seen or I even find through some of that then I incorporate into these presentations. So that back and forth collaboration can be an important part of that process that that moves all of us forward and really kind of sharpens what information we feel like is important to present. So just briefly, I want to mention Rosecrans, since I represent Rosecrans through all of this. What I would encourage you to do, if you have just a couple minutes, is go to the website. We have a great website, very uh, user-friendly, rosecrans.org. On it, you'll see that the kind of the orange band that goes across Choice or other organizations that's just not just on marijuana, but I've done presentations on vaping. We have people that have done presentations on anxiety and depression and uh, preventing suicide and grief and loss. All these great presentations we've done some of recorded, some of them we still have upcoming. So please check that out. It has all the information on all of our programs. We're over 50 locations all throughout Northern Illinois and Wisconsin and Iowa and down in central Illinois. Residential services for teens and adults, uh, but then we have outpatient services. A lot of them right now are still virtual because of COVID. Hopefully, more sooner than later, we'll be able to move back in person. when we have, you know, intensive outpatient programs, partial hospital programs, early intervention classes for teens. And I always like to mention we do all of our assessments are free. All of our assessments are confidential. So we can do those. Right now, we're still doing those primarily over the phone, just for convenience and, and convenience so it's, it's free, it's confidential, it's over the phone so we're really trying to eliminate as many barriers to get people assessed you know, to get teens assessed, adults assessed particularly where there's that substance use issue or with teens with mental health like I said we have residential mental health treatment out at our facility in, in Rockford as well so I just wanted to, to mention that um, you know, come, we'll come to the questions in a second but you, can, you here's my email just mquinn at rosecrans.org our, our intake line in terms of setting up assessment and admission, any of that kind of stuff, please feel free to reach out to us or to me with any questions you might have or if you need to get somebody, I'm happy to jump in and try to help get somebody uh, assisted with with entering in our services. So I'm going to just briefly mention that as we're kind of wrapping up the, the presentation part of all this and moving into the, the q and I want to do at least acknowledge acknowledge some of that. And my, my role through real So thank you so much, Ashley. She's jumping right on. She knows the timing of how, how all this works. So, let's let's jump let's jump into. I know we have plenty of time, right? We have about a half hour or so, maybe twenty five minutes. So, hopefully, that should be enough time to to, to get to all the questions. And who knows, we may wrap up a few minutes early. That that would be okay with everybody, probably, right? So, uh, Ashley, do you mind running through some of the questions or any thoughts that you have? Sure.
0: Um, okay. So, first question is it true that all foreign substances that enter the human body can and probably do affect a person's brain? Thank you in advance.
2: Yeah I think so. I think to varying you know to varying degrees it depends on which systems it's going to go through. You know you could say somebody's has a, a peanut allergy right or a gluten allergy that's probably going to have more of an impact on the the you know gastrointestinal right but but if it's a strong enough allergy that that can that could throw off the, the functioning of, of the brain. Certainly, you know, in, in my lane and in our lane, actually, it's when we're talking about any drug, whether it's nicotine, marijuana, alcohol, cocaine. Right. And be, because the. The response to that, even the pleasure around that is all so much brain based. There's always going to be there's always going to be a downside to that. There's going to be a withdrawal from that. There's going to be a, a, an impact to that. Um In terms of any substances, you know, other than drugs, I I don't want to get into speaking to other things outside of my lane in terms of what impact they're going to have on the brain, but I think it's safe to say that it's all interconnected. There's a blood-brain barrier where it's a lot easier than people think for stuff that's in their blood to get into their brain because of how, for lack of a better term, permissive that that barrier is to allow stuff into the brain. So hopefully that answers the question
0: um are our data available on the impacts of marijuana legalization on usage of alcohol, cannabis, and other drugs within the population?
2: yeah, what I would point you know again, that person who asked that question, feel free to email me. I could kind of walk you down that road. but there's really been I, I point to Colorado in particular because it's been legal there, really that more than any other state. I mean, at this point, I think it was around twenty fourteen, so it's almost like I think it's been six or seven years. Which is really crazy to think about. Makes me feel old that it's been legal there for that long. Um, but there's something called HIDA, which is the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area, which is an organization that's kind of a dedicated itself to studying some of the really objective and objective numbers in terms of the impact that marijuana possibly could be having, in particular, in that state. Um, so I really and I think again I can point anybody in that direction. But HIDA, H I D T A, look that up, Colorado. Um, You can find a treasure trove of information in terms of, and it's really striking. I didn't include the slides in this presentation, but I've done other presentations where I talk about some of the striking impact that marijuana has had on traffic deaths and uh, hospitalizations, uh, youth use being way up relative to other states, all of these things, but it's pretty clear cut, but it's nice to have the numbers that kind of back that up. So I'd I'd be happy to point anybody in that direction.
0: Great. Thank you. Yep. Um, how is regular use defined?
2: Good question. And it's kind of intentionally vague, right? Because, you know, re- regular use in my mind, if, if somebody's wanting a little bit more of a finer point on it, re- regular use in, in my mind in terms of when I, you know, having done a thousand and one assessments myself, I would say three three times a week, two to three times a week to daily would what would, would be what I would consider regular use if you're talking about monthly maybe even weekly that probably would not be considered regular use so you're talking about kind of multiple multiple times a week to daily to multiple times a day kind of in that in that vicinity there hopefully
0: hopefully that helps um okay um just jumping around a little bit yeah sure how long did you say it takes someone to go through a withdrawal period?
2: Again, the, the, with marijuana, it's it is a little bit tricky because it can be so individualized based on um, even even something like their their BMI. You know, someone that because marijuana is stored in fat, if somebody has a higher BMI, that withdrawal is actually going to be a little bit more. Uh, a longer period of time, but maybe a little bit actually more mild because the marijuana is in their fat cells and, beca- and can kind of come out slowly, which leads to a little bit more, uh, sometimes a more mild, the more uh, withdrawal that can be three, four, five weeks. Versus, so if it's if it's heavier, if it's heavier use, regular use, as I defined it, somebody that's and, and also depends on if somebody's been using regularly for a month. The withdrawal is not going to be as bad versus if they've been using regularly for a year. It's going to be a little bit. So there's so many different variables, but I would say generally a one- to two-week period, if you're looking for, again, a more specific answer, generally you're going to see some of those symptoms for about a one- to two-week period, all all, all things being equal with regular use and kind of BMI being in the average range, I would say, in that kind of week- to two-week range that you're going to have to maybe write out some of those symptoms that I talked about.
0: Okay, what are some healthy coping skills to help with
2: withdrawal? Good question. Um, you know, a lot of it is going to revolve around substituting, you know, exercise. Exercise is going to help quite a bit. You know, having the education about what some of those withdrawal symptoms are. I've had, I've had some people that, in, 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 in terms of some of the, I hate to use substance as a substitute, but something like melatonin, you know, which is a natural um, kind of supplement that some people will use to, to assist with sleep. I've had people that maybe will for a two-week period, if, they're, if if sleep difficulties is one of the most common, which are all symptoms, so I put it toward the top, that if they're having trouble with sleeping, maybe taking something like melatonin for maybe a couple of weeks, which is, which is non-invasive, which is really kind of a natural supplement, to kind of help with maybe getting them to fall asleep. And then maybe after a couple of weeks and the withdrawals better, maybe they can kind of wean off the melatonin. So sometimes it could be supplements, you know, a lot of times it's just kind of talking through it or it's it's education. It's all, uh, let let me think about that more as we're working through Q and A and I'll try to come up with some other kind of healthy, healthy coping skills that are going to manage. I mean, if it's, if it's irritability and anxiety, it could be working through, because some of those irritability, some of that anxiety might be related to other, you know, genuine anxiety that they have, you know, it's genuine worries that they have about the world or expectations, unrealistic expectations that they have that might be part of their kind of anxiety profile, that starting to work on some of those specific anxieties or thought processes that they might have that might be feeding the anxiety, that might help to ease the withdrawal if they're also kind of targeting some of those anxieties at the same time, if that makes sense.
0: Okay, next question. Can you provide, and maybe not, but can you provide a connection between marijuana usage and suicidal ideation slash behaviors? What would be a recommendation when assisting a youth that battles with both? That's
2: a good question. And I don't have the specific numbers out there, but I know that there is an increase in risk for suicide with regular marijuana use. And it's really directly tied into that amygdala, right? That part of the brain that man helps is kind of the, 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 the center or core of mood regulation. So you have the, the, the amygdala or that part of the brain that's being bombarded with marijuana and making it harder to manage mood and, and depression and those types of things, right? So it makes a young person more susceptible to depression. And anytime you have somebody that's more depressed or more susceptible to depression, there's always going to be that increased risk for suicide ideations, for suicide itself, because that is one of the, the symptoms. In, the, in terms of diagnosing depression, that's one of the symptoms. So naturally, you're going to see that you know increased risk. So I think you know again, it's a two pronged approach. If, if if there is genuine depression there. You're gonna to want to, and, and suicidal thoughts that come with that, you're gonna to want to get them to understand, okay, getting getting through stopping the marijuana use in the in the long run is gonna decrease, most likely decrease suicidal ideation. Now, the first week or two, there might be issues with that because of that withdrawal. But so you want that you want that understanding that the suicidal ideation should go down and over time as you use less. But along that same, then you've got to treat, then you've got to adequately treat the depression in terms of whether that's, you know, most commonly used cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, in combination potentially with antidepressant medication. You know, but I, again, I think a key point with that is that evaluating, particularly valuing medication and antidepressant medication, I really think should come at least, at least at least a couple weeks after use has stopped to get a, a more accurate picture of how much of it is depression versus how much of it is Induced by the substance, but it's going to be that multi-pronged. If somebody's suicidal, let me say this: if somebody's using marijuana, a teen, and is suicidal, much more likely that there's more. There's more to the depression. In other words, there probably likely is a true depressive disorder under underneath the substance use then if someone has kind of more of a mild depression pre, uh, presentation, there is a decent chance that they stop using that, that depression may lift. But if usually depression, the suicidal thoughts is more in that kind of moderate to severe depression symptomology, which means that when they stop that, de- that depression probably isn't going to fully lift. That's why it's so important, you know, to look at medication and more specific therapies that are targeted toward that depression, kind of a, 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 two, a two-tiered kind of treatment approach—that's a pre—which is a lot of what we do dual diagnosis—is the term that, that's used, right? Where it's addressing the reasons to stop using the support around that, and at the same in the recovery community, all that, but at the same time, really treating that underlying depression. That's going to be the most effective way to manage or try to kind of dampen down or quiet down those suicidal thoughts. Hopefully, that that helped.
0: Okay. We have one, Matt, that we want to address. We have a Wisconsin State Assembly representative all right. who is on, and he would like to know who is paying for the extremist propaganda. Um, he wants to know all of your credentials, and he's leaving lots of comments in chat. So I would like to give you the floor to address that.
2: Yeah, sure, absolutely. So um, my credentials, first off, in terms of... What my licensure is, so I'm a in Illinois, I'm a licensed, certified alcohol or certified alcohol and drug counselor, and then a licensed clinical professional counselor as well. Um, and then what was can, actually? Can you repeat the other questions just so I'm clear on it?
0: Um, he just says you couldn't be more wrong. Um, it's extremist propaganda. This whole mm-hmm. presentation, and I really wish he would have attended maybe some of our other series when we talked about the medical, the workplace, and stuff. But he's only been to yours.
2: And again, in terms of, I I never want to, you know, in terms of where I get my information from, you know, in terms of my experience and the research I pull into this, I really do, I'm very careful about where it's coming from, you know, and because it really does overlap well with what I've seen with young people, um, I'm sorry that that person feels that way, that it's propaganda, but all I'll say, all I'll say is that because I know this can be a sensitive topic for, particularly with, within legalization, I'm mindful of that. So I'm very careful about trying to provide information, you know. And, and I, will, I will say in terms of teen use of marijuana, right, I would encourage anybody to find me. I, I, would, I would welcome this discussion in terms of somebody that really has the research base out there. That is going to tell me that that generally speaking, in ch- in childhood and teenage years, that marijuana. Now, we're not, I'm not talking about necessarily CBD and seizure disorders and other things where there might be more a meta. I'm talking about THC. I'm talking about getting high. I'm talking about those types of things. Show me the research base that indicates that it's safe for a child or teenager. To be doing that, and let's kind of compare the research out there. That's I would I would I would encourage that. Let's 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 look at that um, because when especially when you focus on that versus adults, I think to me the research and evidence out there is pretty clear about childhood and teen marijuana use.
0: Thank you. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to respond to that. Sure. Um, Okay, for, we have a lot of counselors that do, are on here, so I think this is a great question for you to maybe address just because of your experience. Sure. Um, how do you address the high correlation with substance use and line-slash-manipulation with accurate assessments? Furthermore, getting them the help that they need.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's, it's something that that I address on a, on a daily basis, oftentimes multiple, times a day basis, with helping to coordinate assessments with teens. I think most of us know if, if a teen has a develop a developing or developed substance use issue, that the probably the best way to think of it is that you know with with any disease there's going to be there's going to be symptoms that typically come along with that right. Now the the interesting thing about the more moderate or severe substance use disorder in particular is that dishonesty, kind of denial, minimization that is actually more often part of that symptomology that comes along with that, just along, just, just with tolerance and withdrawal of those other things. But because it's a behavior, it could be hard given our, how our society works. And like you take a pill to take care of this symptom, right? It could be hard to understand that the behavior of dishonesty, manipulation, minimization, that, that that actually is a symptom of this disease that needs to be understood and prepared for. In other words, with our assessments, we're always trying to coordinate, okay, how do we get information from the parents? How do we get information from the school? How do we get information from the therapist, anybody that's involved? Because if we just talk to a teen, and usually if they're coming to Rosecrans, they're usually pretty progressed, right? Where it's a mo- more moderate or severe issue. So because that those symptoms of uh, the dishonesty, et cetera, are, more often than not part of that to expect then to get the full story it's really not usually going to happen so it's really important that we piece together as many of those components as possible a drug test where it's really talking to the teen is one piece of let's say a, a five or ten piece puzzle of assessment right and it's a drug part test as part of it getting the parents what i always tell parents when i help to arrange an assessment is i say Make sure you're getting an opportunity to talk to who's doing the assessment and providing information that you think there's a good chance that Johnny or Susie who are, is going to leave out because they're probably going to leave something out because they want to try to minimize what's recommended the level of care because it's different than a lot of other mental health issues where oftentimes teens don't, they think they're fine. They're having a great time in their mind. They, they got it under control. It's different than a lot of other mental health issues where they don't they don't often want the help, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't get it or that they are not going to benefit from it. So hopefully that makes sense. I'm, I'm happy to answer anything more specific within that. But.
0: Yeah, Thank you. Um, I see a couple questions regarding this. Um, if you smoked weed as a teenager and then quit, will your brain kind of reboot or does the damage last?
2: That's a, I get that question a lot, and I think it's, it's hard to really – Pinpoint it. What, what I would say, from what I've seen, and this is more so based anecdotally, I would say than in the research I've read, because I haven't found a lot of really strong research on this. But I would say an, anecdotally that there is, you know, to encourage people to be a little more optimistic that there there is a lot of bounce back. And what I've noticed is that the bounce back tends to relate more so to how early you stop. In other words, if you if you're that's why I love doing work with middle school age and early high school age kids and their families because if you have a 13 14 15 year old that maybe is starting down this road and then they stop and they don't use again the bounce back is going to be closer to 100 percent. it's going to be tremendous right because the brain at that age really is very flexible and plastic, right now if you have somebody that's using up until early 20s you know late teens 20s where that brain's a little bit more formulated you're not going to get as much bounce back right that's intuitive but i've just seen that play out many times but i will say that there there's a lot more bounce back that i've noticed with teens and young adults that stop versus clients i've worked with that are in their 30s 40s 50s there's still bounce back but i i see a little bit more which makes sense the brain's still developing in which case there's a little bit more room wiggle room and an ability to kind of bounce back a little bit more if if that growth is still happening. So I know that's kind of a, a vague anecdotal answer, but I, I haven't found specific research around that.
0: Yeah, and I've heard that too with one of our um, child psychologists in the area too. He says the same thing. You know, the sooner the stop, the less, the more likely they'll bounce back than if they continue to use. So. Right. Um, couple of questions surrounding um, this too, and we've gotten this at all of our um, presentations is like wh- what can we tell kids? You know, is there a movie you recommend or a website? Because obviously they can find answers that are contradicting what we tell them as parents. So do you have any good resources that you like to share when you work with kids? That's
2: a great question. You know, they're really Unfortunately, there's not a lot, and and usually I, I I realize when I say great question that's code for like a, a stumper a little bit you know yeah, because I, I feel like there's not unfortunately I think there's way more media out there that's going to be kind of more um, unfortunately promoting the mildness of marijuana use versus um, there's 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 kind of a, a documentary oh, what is it um, Boys of Dogtown I'll have to, I'll have to send it to you Ashley. Uh, there's a documentary on the um, kind of the emerging in California when kind of the skateboarding culture emerged way back in like the eighties and nineties. Um, when, when kids were kind of swimming, uh, skateboarding in, in people's pools that were empty when they were, when they weren't home, there was this whole kind of subculture around marijuana that evolved with that. And there's a great doc. I think it's called the boys of Dogtown. I want to say um, where mm-hmm. it's, it's really kind of these kids telling their personal story about their kind of journey that really started with marijuana use and kind of evolved into a larger problem. And then they kind of look back on it and talk about how they recognized it. And I think it's it's particularly relevant because these kids are cool. You know, think about like these kids that were behind the emergence of skateboarding culture in, in the 80s, in the 90s, in California. You know, young people generally, even today, I think are going to look at these young people and say, oh, they're cool. And anytime, anytime a young person thinks someone's cool, they're more likely to listen to the message behind them. Um, if that's not the name, I'll get it to you, actually. But that's the thing that jumps to mind um, in terms of this kind of documentary that I'm talking about.
0: Um, Katie looked it up, and it's Lords of Dogtown.
2: Yes. That's it.
0: Yes, yeah, so you were close. You were yeah. close. Um, could pandemic and quarantining of normal social kids be a childhood trauma? So it's a little bit off topic, but I know we covered this in another one. Can but I, I say that one clear. more time? Um, could pandemic and quarantining of normal social kids be a childhood trauma?
2: Trauma is trauma is so individualized. I think I think for some kids you could categorize this as being traumatic. What I've seen more so is kind of the more common state is where kids' anxiety could be depression. But I've really seen it more striking with anxiety where their, their anxiety level is just at least a little bit higher than it was before all of this because they're hearing about, they're bombarded by, you know, the pandemic and, and isolation, and, and it's really, I think it's easy to, I think kids do bounce back, and I think they will, but I think what I've noticed more so than trauma, but, but trauma and anxiety are kind of cousins, right? You, you could argue that trauma is a form of anxiety, right? So I think, are there some kids where it's been traumatic? Yeah. I, what I think more are overarching is you have kids that are just more edgy, more worried, more just concerned about their future concerned about the future of our country the world you know everything in general that's really the thing that i've seen more pervasive overall certainly there's some kids that are more depressed particularly kids that are inherently still more social and have been just cut off from getting that kind of that life force and that life um you know of being around other kind of how it just kind of fuels them that connection certainly depression can come along with that as well definitely and the two can can coexist at the same time. So that's what I've seen more so I would I would categorize it more so as increasing anxiety level, generally more so than than trauma. But again, that's not to say that there aren't young people out there that have been traumatized by this to some degree. Yeah.
0: We have a lot of questions, so if we don't get to all of them today, if you don't mind, I'll copy and paste them in. When you have time, you can answer them. I'm trying to jump around so that I'm not um, skipping over too many. Um, Wendy did share some sites, too, that she likes to use, like GetSmartAboutDrugs.gov or ThinkTwice.gov. So I know Johnny's Ambassadors has a lot of great information. I've done a
2: presentation for them. They're great. Yeah, I would encourage you. I I should know that. I just did a presentation for them. So they're... Their website, especially, especially when it comes to marijuana, Johnny's Ambassadors, uh, Laura does great work over there, and check out their website. I remember when I was kind of preparing for doing a presentation with them, this is a couple months ago, it was really kind of overwhelming to look at the speak. They, they have, just like your choice, they have a whole library of speakers that they've brought in. I would encourage people to listen to those to, as well to get that information, but also just an incredible amount of research on uh, on marijuana and uh, shame on me for not thinking about that as a resource. Okay. I just did the presentation for them and, I, and it's going right over my head.
0: I will um, include those in my thank you email as well so um, people can have easy access to them. Okay, so we have four minutes. So let's see here. Pick um, the good ones. I know. Well, we did have one. Um, that is from Colorado and the person just said having lived the dream here in Colorado for the last five years with my 20 year old son, I will say that everything here has resonated with me. Depression, car accidents, gateway use, reaching a point of not turning back despite the consequences, school learning issues, etc. Thank you for this. Thank goodness my son just hit one year clean and sober. So congratulations. Um, so somebody who is living in the states where it's legal is just validating exactly you know they are seeing what is going on so right and then,
2: and hopefully that will help with any perception of propaganda this is not that is not really what this is meant to be about
0: right yes and you can't see in the comments um but people are thanking you for your response <laughs> to that um okay
2: but i want to be, be diplomatic about it it's it's not something to get defensive about everybody has a perspective that that, that, you know, we need to empathize with and, and listen and, and kind of hear everybody out, right?
0: Right. And we at Your Choice agree, too. There's two sides of it. It's not just clear cut, yes or no. And so I think it's just great for everybody to hear both sides and make their own informed decisions. So I really, okay. really appreciate that. Okay, let's do one more. And then if we don't get to your question, um, I will um, copy these, send them to Matt, and then I'll just email them to you. Um, Sounds good individually. So, um, Matt, you're in a legal state, so not all of us are there yet. Um, but as an employer, I know we can restrict the use of marijuana for employment, whether it's legal or not. However, in states where it is legal, when you drug test, how can you tell if they've only used well at work?
2: That's hard. This is where I need my colleague Mary Egan on here. She does like a marijuana in the workplace. You know Mary actually yeah she does a great marijuana in the workplace. I wish I could, I wish I could pull her in right now to answer that question because this is certainly in her lane, but I mean it is very difficult because of the fact that marijuana is not like alcohol, right? Where you can, there's no breathalyzer yet at least, you know, hopefully someday there will be one that's, that works properly. Right. But somebody can have marijuana in their system for days, weeks, even months potentially. Right. So it could be, it could be very, very difficult to tell. I mean, I guess all you can really do is look at some of the, the, the more common signs and symptoms that you'll see. Like for instance, if somebody is under the influence of marijuana, there is more likely what I, what I always say with, with substance use is the eyes tell the story in, in, in a lot of situations, right? You can't necessarily get a level of a drug from somebody's eyes, but if somebody's really under the influence of, and, and, and it's different for different drugs, but with marijuana, that's one of the best things I think you could look at is what what, what do their eyes look like? But the problem with that is that that's not necessarily going to be evidence. You were looking for evidence, right? That, that that person was under the influence. It's tricky because they may test positive, but they'll say, no, that was in my free time when I was not at work. And then they could, they could build, they can have research back that up, right? Back your research that backs that, that them up that says, yes, this is absolutely possible. That they tested positive, and they did it on their own time and were under the influence at work. So all you can really do is look for some of those signs and symptoms in terms of maybe coordination. Uh, if if it's something where they're moving around a lot, there there might be an accident, you know. But there's there's really nothing out there definitive that that at least I'm aware of that can prove that if somebody tests positive, that that was the case while they were at work versus on their own time. I just don't think there's a a perfect answer for that.
0: Yeah, and I think as as it becomes more and more legalized that there will be more tests that are more definitive on Mm -hmm. when the use was, so yes. yes.
1: Well, thank you for joining us on Prevent This today. If you would like to watch this presentation as a webinar style presentation, we do have it recorded and available to you. You can access it on our website at www.yourchoiceprevention.org. Otherwise, thank you so much for watching and have a great day.